On my way into church this morning to preach this homily, I noticed a banner on a house across the street that said that black lives matter. And it struck me as an interesting contrast to a thing that I see every day on my way into work, which is at a Christian school in Manassas. Across the street from there is a Confederate flag. And these two contrasting symbols or banners outside one's home point up something that I think we're encountering in the text from First Kings that we're reading today. What we're seeing is a sort of competition over competing narratives of national narratives. And this is not just a, a big picture national thing. We see this at a personal level as well. We're struggling over a sort of golden age mythology while also trying to reckon with ugly truths about the past. And this could be true of a friend or family member. We've probably all dealt with this in one degree or another. It could be an institution, not least of which we could count the church. It could also be, as we were saying, a nation. One of the ways that the Book of Kings sort of foists upon us these sort of competing national and personal narratives is by doing this little annoying habit of saying things like, so Solomon's kingdom was firmly established in 1 Kings 2.12. But then the narrator proceeds to recount palace intrigues, family subterfuges, Solomon's bloody purges of rivals, and even his exiling of the incumbent priest. In short, his kingdom was not firmly established. Today's reading, likewise, extols the incomparable wisdom and piety of King Solomon. Yet all the while, it reveals to us that David's heir did things that the book of Kings, as a rule, identifies as the height of folly and even apostasy, falling away from the true faith. So, in 1 Kings, we are seeing a contradiction between Solomon's renowned wisdom and his idolatry, and if you kept reading, oppression of the people, that must be laid bare by any commitment to truth. And so likewise, we must also crucify our notions of our personal or societal golden age, the side of Christ's return. As every Israelite knew, even many centuries after the events happened, Solomon was granted a divine promise. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises David an eternal dynasty. He says that David will have a son whose kingdom will never be taken away. He may disobey, but in the end, God will restore him. Not only that, but Solomon, David's son, we are to understand, would build God's temple in Jerusalem. So great as David might have been as Israel's king, in a sense, Solomon is even greater in that he gets to build God's central place of worship. And this is not only the central place for Israel. In their minds, at least, this is the center of the world. So this first part of the book of Kings that recounts Solomon's reign, especially when we get to chapter 6 and 7, they mark sort of the high point of Israel's history. It's sort of a in a tie for the best part of Israel's history with God, with uh, the giving of the law at Sinai. So Solomon's temple is sort of climax number two of the Old Testament. 
Our chapter today in 1 Kings 3 marks the auspicious beginning of Solomon's reign. Even many centuries later, everybody knew about Solomon's wisdom, and the same could be said of even to this day. Solomon asked for um, wisdom from God, and God himself gives it, because Solomon asked for it instead of riches, power, or a long life. Solomon is therefore the paragon of humility. This is the story that is inherited by later writers who put the books of Kings together. And for convenience sake, we'll just simply refer to these later writers as the historian. To judge from this passage, what a great king Solomon must have been. He has a deep appreciation for the commitment God made to his father David and praises God for maintaining his steadfast love. Solomon, in his sort of mode of humility here, calls himself a little child who does not know how to go out or how to come in. He confesses that his judgment and understanding are not up to the task of ruling as king. He emphasizes his smallness and inadequacy compared to the great multitude of Israel, too many to be counted, he says. And just in case there was any doubt, verse 10 informs us that it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. God validates Solomon's request by not only granting him wisdom, but by giving him riches and honor and the chance for a very long reign. If we pay close attention to this text, however, the details about Solomon don't seem to quite add up, and the historian implicitly calls into question Solomon's reputed greatness. Let's look at the evidence. First, in the first two chap- uh, verses of chapter 3, we learn that Solomon made a marriage, al- a marriage alliance with Egypt. This point stands without comment for the moment, but it sticks out like a sore thumb. It has nothing to do with the passage that came right before and really has no bearing on the passage after it. Solomon was notorious for his marriages with foreign wives, and the historian is elsewhere deeply critical of these marriages, not to mention foreign alliances, not to mention alliances with Egypt. If we keep reading, we find that these alliances, these marriages, lead Solomon astray from the true worship of God, which is to say the exclusive worship of the Lord. And the historian credits these marriages for Solomon's downfall. Second, if that's not strange enough for a story that is largely positive about Solomon, in verse 4 we read, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Now, the high places is a sort of technical term throughout kings that refers to outdoor altars on the hillsides, and these are totally unauthorized sites of worship. Consider it one of the deadliest sins in kings. One is only supposed to make sacrifices in Jerusalem where the Ark of the Covenant is. After all, that is why Solomon is to build a temple there. Making offerings at the high places is not a harmless vice. What the apple was to Adam, the high places are to Solomon and the kings after him. Lastly, we see at the end of this passage that Solomon does indeed make an offering to the Lord in Jerusalem in front of the Ark of the Covenant, suggesting that he very well knows better. So, 
we have to ask ourselves, as we look at the received tradition of Solomon's discerning mind alongside his active disobedience to God's will, what good is this wisdom anyway? It's a tough question to confront. This wisdom comes from God and indeed represents God's stamp of approval. Surely we cannot fault the gift itself, and even less can we fault the giver. But even if we thought chapter 3 is not critical of Solomon in any way whatsoever, we still have to reckon with how such a wise man could so catastrophically fail in keeping his kingdom together in the end. Did he experience moral and spiritual decline only later in life? Or, we must ask, were the seeds of his undoing present from the beginning? Was it only partial wisdom that Solomon received? Scripture does not so much answer these questions, at least not here, but it does force the questions upon us. The notices about the high places and a foreign marriage alliance do not need to be present at all for this narrative to work. And yet, here they are. It all adds up to call into question whether there was even a golden era within Solomon's reign. Surely, the nation was great at some point, right? No, no it wasn't, not really, is the historian's response. Now here we are in July of 2020, at a time when our own mythologies of national greatness and golden ages are being tested against the truth. For example, what are we supposed to do with founders, presidents, philosophers, war heroes, preachers, theologians who owned slaves? This is not some abstract connection to the biblical text, by the way. The northern kingdom of Israel rebels immediately after Solomon's death and splits the kingdom in two because Solomon had instituted forced labor upon the northern tribes for building the temple. 180,000 of them, according to 1 Kings 5, 13-16. Now, in modern English, we have a word for forced labor, slavery. He also enslaved indigenous Canaanite groups for the building up of the city of Jerusalem and other cities, according to 1 Kings 9.20-21. So, along with Thomas Jefferson and on the religious side, say, Thomas, or Jonathan Edwards, we can add King Solomon, to the list of problematic figures whose history with slavery we have to reckon with. So now we must ask, how does this reckoning happen? The beginning of the answer, and we can only offer a beginning tonight, is to start by telling the truth. That is what the historian behind First Kings does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Everything we've heard from Scripture tonight is about shattering illusions about the past through spirit-led truth. It is what Brian Stevenson, founder of the Equal Justice Initiative and wonderful Christian advocate for inmates on death row, emphasizes again and again throughout his work. He gave a recent interview on truth-telling that is worth quoting at length, of which he writes, I think it's local, it's intimate, it's familial, it's communal, it's statewide, it's nationwide. I think every entity, every institution, has to commit to this process of truth-telling. I think it's really important that people understand that if you're genuinely engaged and recovering from human rights abuses, you have to commit to truth-telling first. 
You can't jump to reconciliation. You can't jump to reparation or restoration until you tell the truth. Until you know the nature of the injuries, you can't adequately speak of the remedies that are going to be necessary. <clears throat> this is still Stevenson. I think we have to try to get people to understand that when we confront this history, we don't have to fear punishment. I'm a lawyer. I defend people who have done things that are terrible. And I'm persuaded that each of us is more than the worst things we've ever done. Because of that, I want to talk about this history of enslavement and of native genocide and of lynching and of segregation, not because I'm interested in punishing America. I want to liberate us. I really do believe there is something better waiting for us. I think there's something that feels more like freedom, something that feels more like equality. There's something that feels more like justice that we have yet to experience in this country. And if we are committed to this idea of America, if we believe in this idea of America, and I might add, of the church, then we ought to figure out how we're going to get to that promise that we have been denied because we have been unwilling to acknowledge the past. That's the beauty that awaits us if we're willing to take that step. End quote. Additionally, and finally, the corollary to this truth-telling is self-denial. To truly reckon with the past is the way of the cross. We must crucify our cherished assumptions about our history, about how we got to the present. This takes true humility. In a way, if God wrote us a blank check like he did to Solomon, saying, ask what I shall give you, we would perhaps be better off pursuing foolishness rather than wisdom. The foolishness, that is, of God, which, according to 1 Corinthians, is wiser than the wisdom of men. For, as Paul writes, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to reduce to nothing the things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Jesus Christ, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. After all, the wisdom of a man or woman who pursues other gods, who refuses to worship God on God's terms alone, who wields the power to dominate and to enslave, this wisdom is good for nothing. Let us embrace instead the foolishness of the crucified Jesus, his kingdom filled with his chosen weak and despised nobodies will be the true and final golden age. Thank you.